This time of year, uh, and just a real Thanksgiving theme this morning, and I was just thinking uh, the origins of our, ho- of our holiday because I heard a couple days ago some friends of mine, Americans who live in Brazil, had a Thanksgiving dinner for their small group from their church in Brazil and with turkey and all the fixings. And Brazilians, uh, the rest of the world doesn't really have a Thanksgiving holiday. They may have something like it, but Thanksgiving is a uniquely American holiday, and so they were just kind of introducing that uh, to their Brazilian uh, small group, their brothers and sisters in Christ there. But um, this is something, don't look this up now, but maybe make a note to look this up later. Uh, the original idea, you can find out about that online and read uh, President George Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation establishing this as a national holiday. And it is all about, if you read that proclamation, it is all about uh, the President and the Congress establishing a day when our nation would, would just stop and thank God. We just reflect on the blessings that Almighty God has provided us. So I hope that uh, in the midst of, of football and feasting and family this week, you will, uh, you will definitely pause and uh, maybe share a word with your family about the source of all the blessings that we enjoy. The story of the sorcerer's apprentice, of course best known to us, Uh, through Disney's Fantasia, an old Disney movie with Mickey Mouse wearing his, uh, the sorcerer's hat hat that he kind of stole from his boss. Um, Originally, uh, this comes from a poem by the German poet Goethe back in 1779. And of course, uh, Disney does a pretty good job capturing the essence of the story as the Wizard leaves the lair on a journey and leaves things under the charge of his apprentice. And his apprentice, trying to make the job of cleaning up around the lair easier, decides to put on that hat and decides to try out uh, his role of being the master, his role of being the wizard, and to magically, of course, enchant a broomstick to help him clean up, or a mop, rather, to clean up around there. And quickly... Um, Things get interesting in that story, but here's how it begins. This is from the, the, the poet Goethe, and of course, this will sound a little old, the wording, but, but I think it's good. It, the poem says, Gone, gone's for once the old magician with his countenance forbidding. I'm now the master, I'm a tactician. All his ghosts must do my bidding. Know his incantation spell and gestures too. By my mind's creation, wonders shall I do. And so the apprentice, you've seen the movie probably, casts a spell on a mop, giving it arms and legs, and then he sends his, his newly uh, alive servant off to do his bidding, washing the dirty floors there. And the apprentice, however, did not know how quickly the mop would be about his business, how quickly he would be filling up these pails of water and bringing them back in. And once the mop got started, he didn't know how to stop it. So to and fro, to and fro, back and forth, the mop goes filling up water buckets, bringing them back to the magician's lair, and that that lair begins to slowly flood with water. The apprentice has no idea how to retask the mop No idea how to just turn the off switch on that mop. And so back to the poem. For the magic charm undoing, what I did I have forgotten. Be a broom, be not renewing, 
Now your efforts spell begotten, still his work abhorrence does the wretch resume. Where I look, a torrent threatens me with doom. And so this situation just, it's spiraling further and further out of control. And at one point, the apprentice yells in the poem, Do obey my will! Be a mop! Defenseless! Be a stick! Stand still and nothing. The mop ignores the words of the apprentice. And terrified at a complete loss, the apprentice, of course, grabs an axe and sets out to destroy that mop, only splitting the axe in two instead of one mop. Now he has two mops. The new one sprouts arms, and they are both going about filling up water pails and bringing them back feverishly with great speed. The flood levels rise at an exponentially greater pace. And so desperate, he knows now that his only hope is for the master to return, for the master to set things in order. The brooms cannot be stopped, at least by him. The flood water is rising, so the apprentice cries out, and we begin to see something almost like a prayer. Both are running, both are plodding, and with still increased persistence, hall and workshop, they are flooding. Master, come to my assistance. Wrong was I in calling the spirits. I avow, for I find them galling, cannot rule them now. And so it's an interesting story, I think. <laughs> Essentially, you've got kind of a, a mutiny type of situation with the apprentice trying to seize power, take hold of the master's role and take matters into his own hands to make his life a little bit easier. The apprentice, assuming that he is uh, ready, that he is able to play this role, finds out he is ill-equipped to fill this role. But he's thinking, of course, why should the master have all the fun? Why should the sorcerer get to have all of the power? And in the end, it, it wasn't so great being the master. Danger, destruction, and disgrace were on the other side of that decision to seize power, to, to commit this act of mutiny there in the lair. We can take that picture down. But remember, um, remember the scripture last week. Yeah, we can take that, script, that uh, picture off the screen. Or we can leave it up there. <laughs> remember the scripture last week. We started out with our Blow It Up series. The enemy comes to Eve and he tells her you can't trust what God says is that God's word is, is, is that even what he said and so he works to cause her to doubt God and the next lie is just as devious and it's right there in the same chapter the next lie Satan whispers to Eve God is holding out on you Eve there's something better out there, but God doesn't want you to have it. Now, Eve relates to him. Well, God has God's allowed us to do virtually anything except one thing. We, we can't eat from that forbidden tree. If we do, we've been warned by God that we will die. 
Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will what? You will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good, both good and evil. You, the apprentice, you can be the master. And it's a real-life version of that story, isn't it? Adam and Eve, they were, in the beginning, they were crafted in the image of Almighty God, Psalm 8, 5. They were made just a little lower than the angels. They were crowned, according to Psalm 8, 5, with glory and honor. It was amazing. It was amazing. So good to be apprentice to the sovereign God of the universe. What elevated standing we were given. Adam and Eve awarded with dominion to govern in, the, in this world, to be partners with God, to create, to dream, to participate with God in his life-giving work. But Satan suggested they could be more than simple sidekicks. They didn't have to just be apprentices. They didn't have to serve God. They could themselves be gods. They could seize authority for themselves. And chaos ensued. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the heavenly father. They were ashamed. They experienced enmity in their relationship with the one who made them their loving father and hostility in their relationship with each other. According to Genesis chapter 3, even the ground, even the, the natural world, the physical world was cursed as a result of their choice to take God's role away. This is known in Scripture as the fall. And the rest is history. The rest is, it's their history. It's, it's our history too. This morning, I believe the Spirit wants us to call out this lie. I believe the Spirit wants us to recognize the ways that, that we at times have bought in and played along with this lie. And then the Spirit wants us to blow this up by exposing it to the truth of God's Word about who we were always meant to be. So Satan wanted Eve and Adam to doubt God. To doubt that he had their best interests at heart and maybe he was holding out on them. And really, why should, why should God get to have the last word? Why shouldn't they get to try their hands at being in charge? And so the big lie, this is on your outline this morning, the big lie is simply this there in Genesis 3. God is holding out on you. He's holding out on you. I think we see ourselves in Adam and Eve's story. We have all gone our own way. We have all, each one of us, at times kind of elbowed God off of his throne and tried to assume leadership for ourselves, deifying, in a sense, ourselves. And so I ask you this, what would it look like if a whole society decided to try this? 
to take over God's role, to, to consider themselves to be the supreme authorities, the decision makers, what would that look like? And I want to go this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul is writing words that I believe he could be lifting off of our blogs and our news headlines in November 2017. Listen to what he writes. What would it look like if people began to take over God's role? 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. In the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God. You believe that stuff about God? Come on, man. Scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents. And speaking of thanksgiving, they will be ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends. They will be reckless. They will be puffed up with pride. And they will love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. And then Paul warns Timothy, stay away from people like that. Now, how you, based on your life experiences and all of that, how you view God will flavor heavily how you hear those words from the sacred text. You may hear them as antiquated, judgmental, backward, or you may hear them as incredibly relevant and you may hear in those words the loving voice of, of your father. He's calling. Calling us. Wooing us to come back to who we were always meant to be. Calling us to something better. Calling us to step away from the precipice of death and pointing us forward into the way of life. You can see that text in very different ways depending on how you see God. Now the story of Scripture give you a very thumbnail sketch this morning. The story of Scripture reminds us that we were crafted in the image of of the master we were made for goodness the bible even says we were made for greatness you and i we were made to serve and made to bless and create we were made to enjoy god and enjoy his creation but we were never intended to take his place adam and eve rebelled we rebelled, and their story is our story, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all, all of us have sinned. 
and fall short of the glory of God. And the consequences of that sin have brought havoc, the floodwaters of chaos into our world, into our families, into our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. I'll be honest with you. Sin, it can be fun. It can be pleasurable for a time. But it always carries with it, carries with it consequences and the aroma of death. Now, God, at this point, the fall of man, our mutiny against the master, he could have turned his back on us and said, I'm done. He could have abandoned us to the consequences, to, to our just desserts, if you will. But praise God, that's not what he did. That's not the story of, story of Scripture. No, he engaged us connected with us by revealing truth, by revealing righteousness, by revealing wisdom, by revealing practical advice to help get us back, to help redeem us, to help put us back in the way of life. And he wants us. That's the story there. He wants us to come back into fellowship with him. He wants uh, for us to come home. He wants for us to, to, to move back into rhythm with his spirit. He wants for us to enjoy the very best that he always intended for us to have. So he sent a redeemer. And this is the centerpiece of scripture. He sent a rescuer, Jesus. By the way, Jesus, his arrival is prophesied back there when the curse was given in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is there. Because God says in Genesis chapter 3, one day a woman will give birth to a child. And that child will crush the head of Satan under his heel. God is sending a rescuer. And the Son of God comes and offers his life on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, so that they could be washed away under the cleansing flood of his grace and we could be restored to our fellowship with the Father and to the reason we exist in the first place. That is our story. Some reduce it to a get-out-of-jail or a get-out-of-hell-free card, I guess you would say. It's a ticket to heaven. And then you just go back to life as you always lived it. But redemption isn't just a ticket to heaven. Redemption is an invitation to join the Master, to partner with God in this kingdom work in our homes, in my marriage, in school, in our neighborhood, in ministry to our city. Now, sadly, one upshot of Satan's lie, God is holding out on you. One upshot of that is that so many people see God and see religion as a form of oppression. Following God's will so limiting. That's no fun. God is holding out on you. He wants to take freedom away. 
All of these, by the way, are echoes of that ancient lie. The cross, I believe, is proof once and for all that God has my best interests at heart, that God was not holding out on me. He sent his son to die for me. He paid an incredible price to bring me back into fellowship with him. So write this down on your outline. The cross is absolute proof that the master has our best interests at heart. There's an old story from the days just before the American Civil War. A gentleman from up north, a man who hated the evil institution of slavery. He traveled down south one time and he came upon a slave auction. It was a revolting sight. And there was a young woman on the auction block and people were bidding on her. And he did the only thing he could think to do. He bought her. And as they were walking away from that slave auction, he stopped her, he unbound her hands, he put his arm on her shoulder, or his hand on her shoulder, and with a smile on his face and great kindness, he said, you are free. And she looked at him and she said, you mean I'm, I'm, I'm free to, to say whatever I want to say? And he said, yes. She said, you mean I'm, I'm free to do whatever I choose to do? And he said, yes. She said, you mean I'm free right now to go wherever I want to go? He said, yeah. She thought about that. And then this time she looked at him with a smile on her face. And she said, then I choose to go with you. I choose to go with you. Look, I know a lot of people see God and see religion as this form of bondage, of oppression, but if you, if you get to know Him, if you know the Father's heart, and if you comprehend the price He paid to set you free then you'll want to follow Him. You'll want to obey Him. You'll want to grow closer to Him. It's an obedience, right, that is not driven by fear. No. It's driven, it's moved by love. Jesus told His disciples. In John chapter 14, verse 15, He said, If you love me you'll obey my commandments the apostle John was one of those who was there who listened to those words and years later he would write in 1st John chapter 5 verses 2 and 3 
This is how we know that we are children of God. We're not slaves, we're sons and daughters of God. This is how we know that we're children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And then I love the last part. And his commands are not burdensome. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. His commands are not burdensome. You see the difference it makes when you get to know the master. You move deeper into blessing. You move deeper in love with him. And you accept and acknowledge the authority of his word. And you, you begin to listen to his voice over the voices of selfishness and pride and hostility that circle around in your dark heart. Write this down on the outline. The last thing this morning I want you to write down. When I, when I fall in love with the Lord, I long to know His Word and obey His commands. It doesn't sound bad. It sounds like good news when you know God. And so if you're ready to give your life to Christ, if you have fallen in love with the Lord, if, if you know the price he paid to set you free, then nobody is going to have to twist your arm to convince you to be baptized. And nobody is going to have to force you to be a tither, to give 10% of your income to the kingdom. No one is going to have to compel you to love your wife, to treat her with respect and with gentleness. No one is going to have to manipulate you to get you to go and share good news in your neighborhood. Are there commands in the Bible? Yeah, there are. Is there a command to be baptized? Yeah, there is. Is there a command to give generously to his work? Yes. Is there a command to love your wife? Yes. To love your neighbor as yourself? Yes. To share, to be a witness for Jesus? Yes, that's in there. But if you love the Lord, his commands are not burdensome. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you, you bought me and you set me free. And I can say whatever I want to say and go where I want to go and do what I want to do, then, then Lord, I'm with you. I choose you. So let me ask you something. This morning, are the, are the floodwaters of your life circumstances rising? Are they churning and ready to overwhelm you? Are things beyond your control? I would say this, there's hope. There's hope. God sent the Redeemer. God sent Jesus into your chaos, into that confusion. Will you put yourself under his mercy and under his authority, calling him Lord? Maybe, maybe you're a disciple, 
but you've kind of gone your own way recently and it's time to go back and say, look, I bought Satan's lie. I thought you were holding out on me, so here or here or here in my life, I decided to go at my own. Will you repent and will you come back to him this morning? Maybe you just need prayers this morning. We'll have a time where you can do that. But let's respond to our masters as we stand together and worship.